So I'm Eddie Gallagher, uh, retired uh, Navy SEAL. This isn't a, a political book. It is pretty much about what happened to me in my last two years uh, of service. This isn't for the right or the left. It's for everyone because if this can happen to us, it can happen to anybody. I mean, everything is in this story. It's a story of grit. It's a story of loyalty. It's a love story, um, story of perseverance, and it's a story of victory. Hello, greetings, everybody. It's Chapo back at you. Um, Will, Matt, and Felix, as usual. Uh, for this episode, uh, look, we've been talking uh, recently. We've, we've discussed Navy SEALs a lot on this show. Like, their their position as sort of the, uh, I don't know, like the, the heroes of the war on terror, the, like the, the best of the best of the military, and the sort of wellspring of uh, sort of books, movies, popular culture, and now political candidates that have all come out of the Navy SEALs. So I thought... For today's episode, we thought, um, why not take a look into a bit of the uh, history, both uh, the, a recent history, but also a, like a larger overview of who are these Navy SEALs and like what, what are they really up to? And the answer to that question is uh, doing drugs, probably trafficking them, lying for media clout, and doing a shitload of war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. But I think like the broader question here is, like, how, how do the Navy SEALs evolve into what they are today? Which is, like like I said, basically a gang of elite drug-fueled killers who carry out assassinations and spying on their own, essentially, as a military within a military. And what are some of the consequences of that? Like, I mean, just off the top of the head, guys, what are some of the examples of, like, Navy SEAL culture that we've um, discussed or parodied on this show? I mean, from the beginning, the operator thing has been very funny to us because we've we've long identified, like, the operator as um you know in a world where you need to show increasing returns all the time if you've made like sort of a social cash out of being a troop you you run out of that after a while you get diminishing returns and we identified the operator phenomenon the cultural phenomenon as um you know how many guy how many guys that were killing potatoes can you like cry and give your first class seat up to people aren't going <laughs> to care about that past 2006 um who are the baddest guys? Like, who are the scariest guys? These guys are so cool. They can wear whatever they want. They can look like a biker gang. And it's, um, it, it is a very noticeable phenomenon since like the end of Bush, start of Obama, the lionization of the guys who get to have beards and like wear stupid vests and shit. But there, we've always identified their culture as kind of funny because it's like, you know, Part of it, part of what makes them cool to people is sort of their independence, right? Like, I, I know, like, in Black Hawk Down, you remember how they talk about Eric Bana's character, like, how, how cool he is that he just goes into those Somali marketplaces and just blends in and walks around. He doesn't care about anything. No one can kill him. And it's funny because he's not blending in at all. No, no, he's <laughs> literally, yeah. He looks like Conrad the Singer. Uh, but um, also it's weird because they have all these like superficial independence things and like have this other independence that we've learned about, you know, their drug use, their probable drug trafficking, you know, having fucking parties where they get in the shower with their, with their homies and shoot Anabar into each other's asses. But 
at the end of the day, they're there because they're the tip of the spear. They're the most, like, they're not expendable in the sense that you want to lose any because it takes a lot of time and money and selection to get one of those guys. But you send them kind of the most dangerous places to do the most unrepeatable things that you want the least amount of people to know about. And they're the opposite of independent. They, uh, this is who they are until the end of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's that, uh, that point about being the, the, the tip of the spear as part of like an imperial society and an imperial war machine. And certainly um, it was largely the, the, the hunt for Al-Qaeda and the um, eventual the killing of Osama bin Laden that I think really like solidified the Navy SEAL in the popular imagination as being synonymous with like the utmost, uh, like, like the absolute apex of heroism and American patriotism after 9-11. And, and then also like, you know, like, um, uh, not, not, but like, not just, not just, um, flag waving, um, you know, duty, honor, things like that. These guys represented all that, but as you alluded, Felix, they also could like look like a biker gang and do drugs. They were, they were kind of outlaws as well. I mean, they're a sort of, uh, you know, we, we as Americans, we love the idea of like someone who lives by their own code that is sort of like outside the bounds of, of uh, polite everyday society and even law and order. And this is an image that they, in their own sort of mythos and symbols and patches that they all love so much, this is something that they cultivate among themselves as well. I mean, it is a culture that is accountable only to itself. And I mean that like literally in that like, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm reading these articles, I mean like JSOC is technically in control of everything. But for the most part, these guys are accountable only to themselves. And to the extent to which we even know about certain like cases like the Eddie Gallagher case, it's because he was so fucking evil that seven of the guys in his own fucking unit were willing to testify against him because of the horrible shit they saw him do. Yeah, and I do, I, we're going to get deeper into it and deeper how the SEALs actually work, and specifically DevGrew, SEAL Team 6. But what I found very interesting when I was reading about DevGrew you know, in preparation for this episode is did you, it it was in the intercept article that they typically, there'll be an officer who's always college educated, uh, who is technically in charge of a, of a team or unit for three years. Right. And they always rotate out after that. The operators, the guys who aren't officers, they stay there for a decade, for a decade or more. So while the officers are like, yeah, officially in charge of it, like the way the military works. You, they are sort of, I think, like purposely set up just to be this figurehead. Because to actually do the dirty shit that the SEALs do, you you can't really just have like some virgin who like, yeah, went to college and can do a lot of pull-ups and that's why he's in the SEALs. It has to be kind of de facto run by the guys who are cutting people's heads off and canoeing people and fucking trafficking drugs and like snorting their own captagon that they make in a ba- in a toilet. And, yeah, and, yeah. and and this there the further up you go, the more you see that replicated. Like yeah, technically a lot of people are in charge of them, but the way I think the way that this is sort of mar- like specifically marketed to people who can join the seals and specifically seal team six is it's not that we're going to turn you into this psychotic killer who like operates on his complete, like his own like battlefield morality and can do all this evil shit. It's like, we kind of want someone who is already that person, right? We want to make sure they have the physical fitness and the mental aptitude. And we want to give them more training to, uh, that they can plug those instincts into, 
But this is specifically, we want people who have no compunctions over just blowing a fucking civilian away if he's going to reveal their position or sees them, you know, bringing in a, f- a bunch of fucking Oxycontin from some pier for, 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 uh, has no compunction about like, yeah, strangling the Green Beret like we'll talk, we're talking about. God knows what else because they have replaced, another thing we've talked about before, they've replaced a lot of like traditional CIA work. And you need someone who they're sort of, they are kind of acting on their own. They, all these, yeah. all these teams are like these atomized crime rings that I mean, you can send anywhere. Yeah. To, and that's to, maximal to, deniability because, because yeah. like they hide things from their pencil neck co- college educated officer. Uh, and then he uh, hides things from the people above him. And so everybody, if they get called on any specific thing can, uh, say that they had not been informed about it. I thought it was so interesting when someone above that officer, like someone who's like an admiral, there are multiple instances of like admirals coming down and being like, no, cut this shit out. Whether they're like canoeing people or like beating the shit out of each other or other, other service members or whatever. What I always think is interesting is they'll never disband it, obviously. And for even the, even the guys, you know, most sub Eddie Gallagher guys, guys who aren't quite that evil, no matter what they do, they'll rotate them out for a year, then they'll bring them back in. Because they know, guys like Bill McRaven know, anyone who's the president knows. I mean, it's, it reminds me of something that people got mad at Trump for saying when he was talking about Putin, when he said, we got a lot of great killers. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, that's, this is who he's talking about. Yeah, you can, slap, you can slap these guys in the wrist for being like, hey, dummy, like people aren't supposed to know about this. But you're always going to bring them back in because you need those guys who have that specific mix of like sociopathy, like situational improv- improvisational brilliance and like the aptitude to, yeah, run like a, a crime ring wherever you put them. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think understanding them as a kind of a criminal organization or gang, because I mean, even within SEAL Team Six, there's like there's sub teams of that. There's like they're all color coordinated, and they all have their own regalia, nicknames, and symbols, and then their own like you know uh, little little signature acts of violence that they all love. And by the way, this is going to be a pretty grim episode because I spent the last day reading about um, canoeing as a fucking uh, like basically a calling card for the Navy SEALs, which is uh, if, you, if you don't know what that is, you will by the end of the episode. But yeah, like I, I think like the way these they, they operate both like um, in terms of the actual crimes they do and the money they make from it, but also just psychologically. I, th- I think like the, the way to understand these is like that these are, yes, the best of the best of the military. But like the reward for that is the freedom to do what, you know, men who are very good and inclined to vi- at violence, um, uh, you know, what the, the best thing you can possibly do, which is, you know, crimes and killing people without any accountability and not not just without any accountability, but you know, in fact, be celebrated for how good you are at it. Um, however, I mean, I think it's a little bit of history here would uh, help provide some context because the Navy SEALs were not always like what we're talking about. Largely, is SEAL Team Six, which is like even within the Navy SEALs, like I said, there are these subcategories of like the elite of the elite, and like these are the guys who are doing most of the really grisly war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, the Navy SEALs just didn't start out like that. It basically just, the Navy SEALs started, they, they weren't even officially like their own thing until I think like the 70s, until like the Vietnam era. But like yeah, the, Vietnam is when yeah. they got formalized. They, they grew out of what was essentially, uh, the, the U.S. military realized in the 1930s as they saw, you know, a, the war and the shadow of war in Europe looming once again, 
they realized that a lot of the war would be fought through these amphibious landings. I mean, like most famous of which is D-Day, but you know, like the, the original, the progenitors of the Navy SEALs were basically these amphibious scouts that were sent um, under cover of darkness or like underwater, like with scuba gear. These are, these are the, the frog men. And they were basically like, they realized that like, if you're trying to land a whole bunch of troops on a beach and you don't know the terrain really well, like if there are, uh, you know, unseen obstacles under the cover of the, the surf and the, the, of the ocean itself, or like coral reefs, things like that, the tides, like a lot of shit can go wrong. And if they go, if one of those little like landing boats gets like trapped on a fucking reef or whatever, the guys are going to get cut up. So they started training for and recruiting uh, soldiers who could do this kind of like, reconnaissance scouting work under very difficult conditions. And they did, they did recruit from people who were largely already athletes, like boxers and track and field stars. Because, you know, I mean, keep in mind, this is like the 1940s where like the average American man smoked like, you know, 10 packs of cigarettes a day yeah. and drank a quart of gin. So like you're finding someone who's just, uh, you know, had enough lung capacity to like swim a mile in the ocean was a, a, you know, a pretty rare breed. So they were the best of the best for that time. And, you know, like they were uh, very successful in a number of like, you know, D-Day most famously, but, you know, Anzio, North Africa, Okinawa, like, you know, it, this is this is where it grew out of. It was basically guys who would just like a PT boat would take them like a mile off the coast and then they would like, under you know, under cover of darkness in like one of those like a uh, like smaller rubber boats, like they would uh, approach a coastline and, you know, assess enemy strength and like, you know, just gather intelligence for like as a forward part of a much larger military force to like to, to prep for a large ground invasion from an amphibious assault. Like that's how it started. And then if you go throughout their history here, like I'm just, I'm just looking at like, this is just like courtesy of the history channel, Navy SEALs, 10 key missions. Of course, the D-Day landings and invasion of Okinawa, uh, invasion of Granada, uh, capture and arrest of Manuel Noriega, uh, Operation Desert oh, thank, Shield thank and Desert God. Storm. <laughs> thank God. Um, yeah, I, I want to rewind a little bit. Um, there were like special Marine units for a while. Like there were, you know, there was the SBS, the uh, Special Boat Service in the UK, that obviously predates the SEALs. And there were, there was SAS, uh, Special Air Service. Um, and we definitely modeled a lot of our guys after, after that. And Will talked a little bit about the frogmen, underwater demolitions. Um, what's interesting is, um, you know, we don't want to go too far in the weeds here, but around Vietnam is when we really started getting the idea of sort of formalizing all of this. And in the same speech that Kennedy made where he's like, we're going to send a guy to the moon, he also committed $100 million to development and training of like specifically named and like tab tabbed up special forces. And those are a lot of the guys that we... You know, we the, the, we saw a lot of use for them in Vietnam. There were the LERPs, the long-range patrolmen, Green Berets, obviously, that predate that by a little bit. Um, and then the SEALs. The SEALs saw a lot of action in Vietnam. And most interestingly, the, th the thing the SEALs did a lot of was um, the Phoenix program. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I mean, like much of the much of the much of the stuff we're going to talk about, at least as it relates to Afghanistan, is basically how these guys went from being well, you know, what was essentially like, you know, elite enough, but like not not as not anything close to like the special, you know, uh, you know, knighted class that they are now. But, you know, they, they performed their specific thing that it related to 
you know, uh, SEAL stands for like, you know, sea, like, you know, like sea, what is it? Sea, sea. Earth, air, wind, fire, whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, they're all, they can like, yeah, if you have a Navy SEAL, he can fight any other type of Pokemon. Yeah. Um, sea, air, land. Sea, they air, throw the AE yeah. in there just to make it into a good, uh, a good an- anagram. And searing, yeah, so like, searing, which is for fire, earth, that's earth type Pokemon, agua, water, and lightning, like Pikachu. But I mean, like you know, like the the frogmen of World War Two were, were were nowhere near what like these SEAL Team Six guys are. And like, yeah, much of what they've done in Afghanistan is essentially what the Phoenix program was in Vietnam, which mm-hmm. is just this giant, giant campaign of assassinations where they're given a list of names and then they carry out these capture and kill missions, which just basically means kill. I mean, they they just they hunt people whose names are given to them either by the CIA or JSOC. Like they just they go out under, you know, again, under cover of darkness and do these raids and just kill their targets. And, you know, in the beginning days of the war in Afghanistan, this was like the list the, the names of those targets were like supposed to be Osama bin Laden himself or like his inner circle of like the high level of leadership of Al Qaeda. I mean, but very quickly in that war. Um, those guys all disappeared into Pakistan, and then officially they weren't allowed to go into Pakistan. But the, as the war, those wars in Iraq and Afghanistan ground on, the political pressure to show results, of course, got more intense. So that, like these guys, as as the word in the, the articles that we read is up tempo, their operations began to be more up tempo, and the names of people on those lists were like mid level Taliban commanders, and then eventually just people going to a wedding party. And yeah. like their wives and children. Yeah. And to, I mean, history doesn't fully repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. So during the Phoenix program, the official kill count is something like 87,000, which is fucking a staggering number. A staggering number. Even, even with this absolutely genocidal amount of people that we killed in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, as Will alluded to, there was a similar thing where often like, people who just didn't like their neighbor would be like, he's VC. And they would get, you know, capture or kill. They end up just like dragging him out outside the village and just popping him in the fucking head. And there were tons of mutilations, tons of shit like that. But I I do think the Phoenix program for the SEALs is very interesting. And our use of special forces gives a new angle to Vietnam for me. And it's that, I mean, it's, we did lose Vietnam. That's undisputable, I think. And uh, we, you know, we pulled out in shame. We, we didn't do what we wanted to do. But I always think about this line from the book Bloods by Wallace Terry, which is this great oral history of black veterans in Vietnam. And there's a lot of like Navy guys in there. There are a lot of actually like LERPs or a few LERPs in there who are long range patrol special forces. And one of the LERPs, like most of the LERPs are like very like sort of jaded and being down about their service, obviously. But there, I remember one guy who's like, yeah, you know, I like, I didn't think we would win, but what we did there was important. We stood up to the communists and said, Hey man, stop this shit. Look how far we'll go. And I don't think he's quite right in that sense. But I think in another sense, Vietnam and Phoenix program specifically, even I don't, I don't think everyone thought we could win that war by the time we were doing Phoenix program. But for what Vietnam became for special forces, which was like a product testing site, is very important. That's when they went from being, yeah, frogmen, underwater demolition guys who are definitely a cut above to like, okay, can you do that? Can you go above and beyond and above and beyond like basic morality? Can you be can you operate like can you operate an in-country mafia? Can you go into Cambodia and do all this shit? And 
I think it's, yeah, it's completely reflected everywhere else they've been since. Are you a bad enough dude to traffic heroin? Yeah, exactly. I, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the Operation Phoenix stuff, I mean, most people don't know about that. But, like, you know, like the, the World War II, you know, genesis of this. Like, these guys, this was still at a time when, like, troops were troops and they were all heroes. And, like, the world we live in now, it's like these guys, uh, they, they, get a, they get a special level of dick sucking. And it's just, it's not good enough for them to be, like, fighting for the U.S. of A. and have the flag on your shoulder. No, these guys are fighting for their own commando units, essentially. And they want to be treated as such. But I think what's interesting is if I like I rolled down that list of like, you know, what, what are the 10, you know, the 10 you know, most historical Navy SEAL missions? It's like half of them outside of like Okinawa and D-Day, as like I mentioned, are like uh, the capture and arrest of Manuel Noriega and um, Operation Desert Storm and like invading Granada, which are like, <laughs> you know, not, not exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, Okinawa, they ain't. And I think like uh, what we're, what comes across in the articles about what they've been up to in Afghanistan is that like for the first time in a long time, they were being used all the time, like going on missions every night. And as such, for the first time in a long time, they were ending up getting killed, too. And it is that it's that sense of like, oh, like, you know, uh, we can get our heads cut off as well or we can be executed uh, after being captured by enemy soldiers that really leads to this sense of like, you know, sort of aggrieved uh, revenge and anger and vengeance at like the, you know, the indignity of being killed by something, someone like the Taliban and like Mm -hmm. that leading to a lot of like, the you know, truly horrific, um, you know, acts of retribution against, you know, random people in Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Vietnam was obviously not like a traditional war in the way that the brass thought it would be or hoped it would be. But during Phoenix program, or during, during all of Vietnam War, for all of the SEALs deployment versus Vietnam, for all those years, 48 SEALs died. A lot of them died just like they would fight pretty close up to the Viet Cong and the NBA and typically, yeah, get shot, step on a fucking mine, you know, whatever. To, for them to, yeah, be caught and like to be made a joke of in the way that some SEALs in Afghanistan were, I think did... It changed the tenor for this thing that was already pretty sinister. These guys who would already go pretty fucking far. And it, it, it revealed a lot of people who, like, you know, would be serial killers. What was the only thing stopping, like, uh, fucking Eddie Gallagher from being, like, uh, Gary Ridgway is that he can do it in another country to other people. And I think there are quite a few guys like that that we found out about. Well, I mean, before we get into the specifics of um, what's going on in Afghanistan, I just want to really just, just just run down just a few recent headlines about the Navy SEALs. Uh, let's just begin here. Uh, uh, this New York Times, July 25th, 2019. A Navy SEAL platoon is pulled from Iraq over misconduct reports. An entire platoon of Navy SEAL commandos was abruptly removed from Iraq this week after commanders heard reports of serious misconduct and a breakdown of discipline in the elite unit. Officials did not release any details, but of course, but a senior Navy official with knowledge of the matter said the Navy is investigating reports that the unit Foxtrot platoon of Seam Teal 7 held a 4th of July party where some members consumed alcohol against regulations and that a senior enlisted member of the platoon had raped a female service member attached to the platoon. The official spoke on condition of anonymity because he was not authorized to speak publicly about the continuing investigation. So that's a whole platoon. Uh, here's, here's just another one from July 29th, 2020 in Business Insider. It's utter bullshit, quote, Navy SEAL was promoted despite allegations he choked a Green Beret to death. 
Uh, this is a U.S. Navy SEAL was promoted to chief petty officer despite allegations that he choked an active duty U.S. Green, Army Green Beret to death only months before. Navy SEAL Tony Dodolph was promoted to chief petty officer, a rank with the authority of a senior enlisted leader, even though investigators were looking into the suspicious death of U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Logan Melger, a Green Beret soldier assigned to the 3rd Special Forces Group in Mali. Prosecutors alleged Adolph, Navy Chief Petty Officer Adam Matthews, Marine Staff Sergeant Kevin Maxwell, and Marine Gunnery Sergeant Mario Madero Rodriguez, all service members who were living nearby, plotted to haze Melger after tensions flared between them on by June 2017. Yeah, I mean, so uh, that guy, he ended up being charged. Uh, he pled guilty. They sentenced him to 10 years. This is after he got promoted. Uh, and th- uh, the story that they told uh, eventually is that they were having a uh, static with this green beret th- that he was, a sen- he was not being cool with them. Just, you know, vibing, I guess in Mali and doing whatever <laughs> they wanted, which uh, some they claim is based. It was just sort of like, uh, you know, masculine conflict. Uh, there were accusations that he, he, the, the green beret was, uh, was going to tell people that they had stolen a bunch of money that was supposed to go to a local informants. Uh, either way, what the, the Navy SEAL and his buddy, buddies claim they did is that they got a, a local Malian security guard and they were going to choke out this guy to Dolph and then film the security guard raping him uh, as basically as a hazing own like that. That was their that was their like frat hijink they were going to do to the guy, choke him out and have this guy rape him and then film it. Uh, and then, and one of the guys who was with him was like a former MMA guy and he put him in a, in a chokehold and he died. That's what they say happened. And, you know, I mean, like that's what they say is say happened. And I'm sure a lot of that is true. But like I said, like, I think like a lot of these, you know, murderers are covering up something a lot more sinister, which I, like, like I said, as I think just either just straight up theft like, you know, like, uh, just, just opportunities to just steal money and rip off people or, um, covering up what I what I think is the true purpose of a lot of what these people do, which is doing security for our allies in the war on terror, just like our allies in the war on communism, which do tend to be um, drug traffickers, and mm-hmm. then like also like helping the CIA corner the market, like corner, basically not directly, but to control all the choke points at like you know the major suppliers for like the international black market for drugs or guns or whatever that like you know they are essentially not selling to anyone we don't want them to sell to and that at some point the CIA is getting a cut as well and you know like in that world like these are the perfect people to be you know the the, the sort of the middlemen for this process is just you know guys who are extremely well versed in violence and have no morality that is recognizable to like a civilian or you know normal human world i have um i have a question that maybe it's on like separate discussion but um something that i think's been interesting about it and this we've, we've talked about this forever we've been wanting to do this episode forever uh the th- interesting thing we sort of pinpointed on the seals is like you know these things that they're doing that uh we've talked about like the things that are they're just essentially running crime syndicates this isn't new for like the yeah. uh, national security state or anything. But what's interesting is this used to be kind of the province of the CIA. Right. And I am, what reasons do you think that they kind of replaced the CIA in doing this? They're, they're I, now I the think, main guys in doing this. I think it's because the, uh, the, the job of 
managing empire uh, changed with the fall of the Soviet Union and then most dramatically with the war, the creation of the war on terror is for the 20th, for post-war era, the, the imperial management uh, was largely conducted clandestinely through the offices of the CIA. And it was coordinating with local, um, with local allies in governments and in uh, organized crime to move drugs and to suppress communism. Uh, and it was all done through the offices of, of, of this, this clandestine organization in the context of a, uh, a cold war with another power in the form of the Soviet Union. But with the end of the Soviet Union and then the declaration of the war on terror, you have the uh, empire uh, being brought out into the open, basically. Now it's being managed directly through military interventions uh, in not just invasions, but then also these uh, special forces, people being operating in all kinds of countries, uh, many of which Americans couldn't find on a map and certainly don't know we're in. Uh, but are but are doing it directly through the auspices of the the military and and through this uh, <clears throat> this new frontier vision of uh, of U.S. arm U.S. military might in like a, on a periphery where there there is no other power who can resist or uh, uh, or declaim what we're doing uh, and where we're basically given a, a we have a free hand to shaped events as we see fit. And so uh, the people doing that, the, the point people for that go from being shadowy spooks in suits to beardo operators who come home and then run for Congress and uh, become members of uh, the cabinets and sell fucking uh, operator coffee and write books about how they killed bin Laden. I mean, uh, how many fucking Navy SEALs are in government right now, one way or the other, uh, compared to when George H.W. Bush, after being a secret CIA agent, uh, was l widely thought to have killed his career when he became director of CIA. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, now, w w when we sort of have owned the empire in a way that we couldn't afford to during the Cold War, uh, our empire fighters are now normalized. So you can have these guys just doing frat parties in Mali and, and doing epic uh, pranks on each other that result in murder uh, while also uh, supervising, you know, drug and gun running and, and assassinations because who there is no one not in no one domestically or internationally to to really notice. I, I think I think you're right on that. I have two other reasons that I kind of thought of. Like the first is pretty basic. I mean, like just because people are all on the same, they, they all have the same goal kind of doesn't mean they're not competing with each other. And I think to an extent, like the, the military and specifically the Navy saw all the fun the CIA was having and kind of thought like, why not us? Everyone's always competing for what the other department has for yeah. funding for a billion different reasons. But I think also, I think the, I, I think everything you said is sort of like a primary reason, but I think like secondarily it's so advantageous for them to use these guys for this type of thing because if you look at the oss and then the cia and even sort of american intelligence before that go all the way back to the beginning it worked because there were these networks of people that like basically knew each other their entire lives right if they didn't go to the same boarding school they basically ran in the same social circles they knew everything about each other because they were all kind of the same people they were all the same like fucked up wasps or whatever and it did 
it resulted in these funny things like them not thinking Kim Philby could possibly like <laughs> be a double agent and, you know, all, all, all types of shit that you from them looking the other way. But it also allowed them to maintain this like veil of, of secrecy. This like kind of omerta where they're not going to flip or like save their own ass or like give up this whole thing. If it's these people who they feel this special, like ethnic and like social kinship with. And this idea that they're all like destined you know, knights of this country who've been purposed for that for generations, for hundreds of years. Um, I think as that sort of went away, uh, the only thing you need, if you're going to do shit like that, you do need like a level of trust kind of. I mean, I think that's a big reason why gangs have become so popular in America. Like you do need kind of a code and a culture, but like the only thing that can be stronger than like, you know, our great great grandparents knew each other. Our moms know each other. Our dads know each other. We fucking grew up at the same time. We've known each other for forty fucking years, and now we're selling all this coke together. The only thing that can replace that is we fought in a war together. If you build those bonds by having guys be in combat like that for for most of what they're, for most of what they're doing, you know, prior to you know drug trafficking, uh, extrajudicial murder, etc., it you can replace that bond and it it is self-supporting in the same way that the CIA like old wasp network was. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really true, but just like, there's only thing I'm going to bring up uh, as it regards drug use, not drug trafficking. I mean, like this is just one article in the Navy times Um, internal report exposes cocaine abuse, lacks testing inside seal team 10. Um, before they were caught last year, several SEAL Team 10 special warfare operators snorted cocaine or spiked their booze with a banned substance, often defeating military drug tests. They termed a joke, according to internal in, internal investigation obtained by the Navy Times. The Little Creek, Virginia-based command conducted urinalysis testing on April 9th and April 16th, 2018, nabbing six SEALs for allegedly abusing cocaine and other banned substances. Uh, I like one quote here. It says, when I was in Colombia, I was using cocaine. I think the only one of I was only one of four Team Teal Ten guys using cocaine there. It was everywhere. It's like, yeah, no shit, no shit. They're stationed <laughs> in Colombia and they end up using cocaine. But Felix, you'll enjoy later in the article. One of the guys who uh, you know uh, pissed dirty for this said, "Oh, like I, I just like we were all drinking the same booze, and it was just my friend spiked it with cocaine." That's awesome. It's like the MMA excuse. You're like, I, yeah, I, ate, I ate a tainted goat. goat. Yeah. I ate a tainted goat that well, was tainted with cocaine. And look, obviously yeah. cocaine is like the perfect drug for people like this. I mean, you know, much has been written about, you know, Hitler's use of amphetamines and the, the Wehrmacht were just basically being given, you know, just they're, they're like, it was just like rations, basically. They were given amphetamines to like keep marching and the speed of their blitzkrieg or whatever was, I think, largely fueled by met, met, meth essentially and hitler himself was as well i mean yeah so cocaine is a, is, a, is a perfect drug for this both as a party drug and just for like the the personality of these guys to say stay jacked up stay fucking stay on that edge stay fucking hyped all the time but deeper than that though because you know like look i drug abuse is pretty common in all aspects of life i mean like there's basically no sector of the american public life or a job in which drug use is not associated in some way or another or which you cannot find you know, people with a habit. Um, and the military is certainly no exception to that. But when it comes to the Navy SEALs, I think there's like another element here um, that is sort of similar to what we're all talking about, like about the, the ties that bind people in these like elite gang-like secret clandestine cadres of like, you know, secret violent men and like the, the world and rules that they abide by, which is very much 
parallel to our own. I think it's the attitude is like, you know, even if that guy was telling the truth about like, oh, like I was dosed by my friends because they just dumped like an eight ball into like a keg of Miller High Life. That's a great whatever. way to take Coke. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems like a waste <laughs> to me. But um, I think, the, but like, you know, we've talked about this in so many other things. It's, it's by doing something illegal or against the rules, but everyone's doing it. It's a way that binds people together. In the, yes. Like, in the way that, like, everybody has to have a little dirt on them. So it's like, you know, it's like masking in public. It's like everyone else's behavior covers the behavior of everyone else. You know, it's just like, like it's a mutual, it's like a, a shield wall. It's like a phalanx of sorts. That the guy standing next to you, like, his shield is the one protecting you and vice versa. Um, and the thing with drugs is, like, uh, you know, if, if everyone can piss dirty, then like everyone can be called on it. But if nobody gets called on it or everybody knows about like when the tests are coming or it's just like everybody's accountable to each other because of this like implicit rule breaking and illegal behavior, then what really counts is the shit that goes on in the field. Like, for instance, when they behead someone for fun or fucking just kill someone because they can or just shoot a kid because they walked into the line, their line of sight. Well, I mean, in that case, this is what it really comes into play, because then, you know, then you know for sure that the guys who are witnesses to this criminal activity, are, you've been witness to their much lower-grade criminal activity, but such that you are covered by it. Everybody is covered by one another, and they're covered by their own illegal actions. It's right. No, this is, I mean, and what is, to put this fully, fully back into the original question, what does this replace? This replaces like what the old CIA guys would do, which is like, you know, steal Geronimo's skeleton and then like all get into the same barrel of molasses and jack off on each other. <laughs> like instead of doing like instead of like Americans sort of replicating like British boarding school, like mutual molestation, it's like drugs and all this shit and murder. But it's the same idea. It's the same fucking idea. It's yeah, we're all a part of this. Yeah. And it's the next and and it and that those sort of the rituals that you know it was in the in the twentieth century it was that the boarding school uh, mutual masturbation and now it's collective blooding uh, in the in this uh, ritual violence those are the way that we initiate people uh, into like uh, rulership like into the halls of power, like the same way that the CIA was a uh, gateway to uh, to influence in in uh, American governing uh, and business structures uh, in the 20th century. Now uh, it's become the same thing for the SEALs. Like there was, uh, remember Ryan Zinke? Oh yeah, yes. he was the uh, secretary of the he, interior. Yes, who uh, who just ripped, who just charged everything to, that he wanted to the company card, basically like <laughs> his wife's uh, and like would furniture just, and shit. Yeah. And would, and would like fly, have a government plane, fly him to golf or whatever. And he also, and he paid, he spent a shit ton of money to create challenge coins, uh, for people in the interior department. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. And, and then there was, uh, Eric Greitens, the governor for a minute of Missouri, the guy who had the, uh, ad where he just fired a Gatling gun into a lake and then yeah. had to resign because uh, he did a bunch of horrifying rapes <laughs> yeah. and now is going to run for governor, uh, run for Senator next year. Uh, and of course, Dan Crenshaw, uh, like these guys are now getting coming home and, and taking those, the skills they learned in Afghanistan and the R Iraq and applying them to the tough problems of uh, solving our 
are government issues. See, I mean, like it's 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 both the skills that they learn in Afghanistan, which is you know liking gay shit, like challenge coins and patches and little like special little little medals that you get. And by the way, the uh, Eddie Gallagher case, um, Trump granted him clemency after like the case, the, the literal like the multiple murder charges he was facing fell apart under rather extraordinary circumstances when uh, the, one of the chief witnesses testifying against him testified under oath after already receiving immunity that he indeed was also a murderer, tor- basically torpedoing the prosecution's case by making their, like, <laughs> their, their star witness essentially admit to do under oath to being guilty of exactly the same things that they were prosecuting yeah. Eddie Gallagher for. I mean, like the, the, the way in which that case fell apart is, is very odd. And I mean, especially considering how completely out of left field it was that seven of his own members of his own unit were the ones who like are the reason he was charged in the first place. But I'll, I'll note this only because Trump chose to grant him clemency after he had been acquitted. And the only thing that really gave him was that he, never, that he could still wear his trident. He could still wear his Navy SEAL like flair and regalia. Yeah, I w- I remember reading what Trump said, and he said this guy did. So- this guy's a great fighter. He deserves his pin, <laughs> and that's it. At the end of the day, it's he needs it's his like, pin. Yeah, you've committed all these crimes. Here's your special hat. We'll never let anyone take your special and, hat. I mean, I, I'm like I I I don't even want to go into it, but like the details of what Eddie Gallagher was charged with are so Terrifying. fucking blood curdling. I mean, you're talking about just like slitting the throat of like a teenager who was already a prisoner of war. You're talking about his own, the members of his own unit fucked with the sights on his rifle because he wouldn't just stop killing children and the elderly because this is, he yeah, could. This is a guy who would have like easily been Waffen SS. This yeah. is like, you know, this is someone who, who may have been, oh God, I hope I'm saying his name right. It's not Der Williger, right? I got made fun of for saying that. It's uh, Bill Winger. <laughs> Side <laughs> Sideshow Bob Terwilliger. <laughs> uh, I don't know Dur- why I Dur- can't Dur- get his name right. Durwanger. Durwanger, yeah. He's exactly like someone who would like be in that unit. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the exact same fucking personality type. I'm I'm just surprised he hasn't like come up. Didn't he try to do like a line of operator gear or something? Yeah, he has his own clothing line. Awesome. I think all, I, I think all like, these guys have their own clothing and brands now. It's yeah. so fucking surreal. Yeah. Do you want to? That's the thing. It's like imagining like if Richard Bissell got fired after the Bay of Pigs, and then he comes out with like a line of T-shirts or like coonskin caps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. And I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's the it's the it's the perfect American thing because yeah, I was reading about all these guys who profited from their service, and it's like. No, after doing all these crimes, you have the opportunity to be, like, just another fucking tacky shithead. Like, do you know that Joko uh, Wilnek guy? Yeah. He's a little more upscale than Eddie Gallagher. He's never been accused of, like, those types of crimes. But his thing is, like, doing motivational speeches for, like, computer programmers and being like, if you don't want to get out of bed thinking about all the things that you wish you did yesterday, you could do them today. You know, that type of, like, bullshit. He's been on Joe Rogan a bunch of times. But that it is pretty amazing because it's like, yeah, go through this training process that like completely any residual humanity you had before just strips it away and it makes you into this fucking hardened fucking Terminator. The last thing that people in all these countries ever want to see is you and commit all the run a fucking mafia in, you know, Western Africa, in Afghanistan, fucking wherever. Come back and you can be. Select your class. Are you fucking annoying asshole motivational speaker who like teaches CEOs how to be warriors in the boardroom? 
do you like make a shittier version of Lululemon that has words like honor and discipline on it? <laughs> you know, do you make like racist coffee? The world's your fucking oyster. It's a bit, this is like grad school for lower middle class guys. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, true. It's amazing. It's and, the only grad school that's actually produces returns is the Navy SEALs. Yeah. And it all started, I mean, it's the guy who founded SEAL Team 6, Richard Marchinko, the rogue warrior. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this dude. I read, I read uh, his book when I was 13. I read that book. That's yeah. what probably caused me to get that knife that my mom took from me. <laughs> well, he got bounced uh, from the Navy uh, for doing kickbacks with manufacturers. He ended up going to prison uh, for defrauding the government uh, over like hand grenade uh, uh, requisitions. And then he got out and said that he was uh, actually witch hunted by the government for all of the awesome uh, uh, shit he was doing with Red Cell and that uh, he he was just actually like testing military preparedness and that's why they put him in jail that became, and then when yeah. and then when he got out he wrote a book about himself talking about how awesome he was he became he it became a whole series of like leadership books for business executives uh he started doing the motivational speaking shit he has a conservative talk radio show there's a video he, game he was a he fucking a 24 consultant he there's a video game where you play as him that they made it's like pretty bad and like funny, but also Red Cell inspired much of the plot of Metal Gear Solid 2. I don't know if people knew that, but his book, his book is like, it's very obviously ghostwritten. I remember loving it when I was like 12 or 13 and I was still like a big lib, but I was like, what if I could be this guy, but liberal? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it is like, I mean, it is crazy because it's like, yeah, that the was the post 9-11 dream. Yeah, that was. I remember when Wesley Clark was going to run against Bush and everyone thought for a second, Oh my God, this is it. We've solved the problem. They couldn't possibly call this guy gay, but like, uh, like, um, that book's awesome. Yeah. Because he does. Yeah. He, he does tons of kickbacks and all this shit, but he's like, I was completely railroaded, you know, and he doesn't say this according to him. He did nothing wrong. And like, they just, I don't, he basically implies that like, um, uh, actually Bill McRaven, and others like fucked with spreadsheets to make it look like he was stealing, which is hilarious. But you know, there, there it is kind of like, well, everyone's doing it in the military. Everyone's kind of doing that. He just did it in a dumb way. I'm a hard-bodied, hairy-chested, rootin', tootin', shootin', parachutin', demolition, double-cap, crimpin', frogman. There ain't nothing I can't do. No sky too high, no sea too rough, no muff too tough. But a lot of lessons in my life. Never shoot a large caliber man with a small caliber bullet. Drive all kinds of trucks. Two buys, four buys, six buys. Those big motherfuckers that bend and go when you step on the brakes. Anything in life worth doing is worth overdoing. Moderation's for cowards. I'm a lover, I'm a fighter. I'm a UDT Navy SEAL diver. I'll wine, dine, intertwine, then sneak out the back door when the refueling is done. So if you're feeling froggy, then you better jump because this frogman's been there, done that, and is going back for more. Cheers, boys. Everything that we've just talked about will come to a head in when I, in all the shit I read about the two guys who both say that they killed Osama bin Laden. And what <laughs> I love those guys. So and like they're, they're such like just everything about being an American liar and psychopath and like all the money you can make if you're good at either of those things is borne out with these two guys. But before I get into that, I mean, like a, a lot of this, like, I mean, there's a long article in The Intercept by Matthew Cole that came out in 2018 
that, that goes pretty in depth into both the culture of the Navy SEALs and like the the culture of war crimes and atrocities that these that they became basically a calling card for SEAL Team Six and like their various subdivisions, and it begins with an account of um, this raid called like Operation Bull, in which like two you know there's two SEAL teams and like Chinook helicopters like you know attack this convoy of people that they were, you know, I, I suppose believe were like high-level Al-Qaeda commanders. One of the guys even said he thought Osama bin Laden was among the people that they were shooting at because they saw in like a, some grainy drone footage, like some sort of slightly taller guy in like flowing white clothing. And they were like, that's, that's target number one right there. I mean, so would it surprise you to know that like this is a convoy on the way to a wedding party and the Chinook helicopters just sprayed this convoy with bullets um, bit, killed everyone they got out, uh, finished off the stragglers who were remaining, and what they found was like a car full of you know families essentially. And yeah, the cars had guns in them, but this is Afghanistan, and it's sort of similar to American policing. What comes across in these news accounts is that you know yeah, in a war, it's kill or be killed. But these guys are doing nighttime raids in which many of their targets are asleep when they get their throats slit or get a bullet put in their head. And so it's a little, a little bit shaky, a little bit to you know, just say like, oh, well, you know, it's the fog of war and it, you know, it is truly kill or be killed. The way that you know, it's justified is that like, if they have a gun in the home, then like, you know, it's legit. But you know, this is Afghanistan, like, much like America. Like, you own a rifle if you have a family like this, this is like basically everybody has a gun and it's a normal thing. doesn't mean that they're militants or part of the Taliban or Al Qaeda or whatever, but basically, yeah, anyone in country is a target. And this goes back to like the free fire zones of the Vietnam war. But interestingly, 48 hours before the attack on this convoy was the, uh, uh, a famous incident where the first Navy seal of the war on terror was killed. He was like knocked out of a helicopter he was captured by the Taliban and like executed before uh, he was able to be rescued. And when they found his body, uh, basically he w- it was like half decapitated. That the uh, like the the enemy had 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 desecrated his his corpse, and that led to a lot of a lot of anger and a lot of like you know really kind of a, a vicious curdling of resentment and hatred against the people, the, you know, the, the, the savages who would do something like that to a fallen brother, and, you know, even in the context of war. And, you know, that led, and that led to many of the incidents that got the Navy SEALs in trouble, leading to, eventually, by 2006, McRaven, who was a Navy SEAL himself, taking over JSOC and cracking down on a lot of this. But, like, a lot of, the, a lot of what went on were these you know, textbook violations of the Geneva Conventions, but like the, the desecration of bodies by Navy SEALs, Take, the taking of trophies of ears, noses, scalps, things of that nature. There was a famous incident where one of the officers, one of these like Ivy, like one of these college educated guys, um, gave his unit custom made hatchets because they were, they were the Red Squad known as the Red Men and they adopted for themselves the persona of like Apache warriors and the tomahawk became a key part of that. And obviously there's no fucking tactical reason to be lugging a tomahawk around Afghanistan. But this, the officer got these custom made tomahawks from a knife maker in North Carolina. They go for about $600 each. This is the guy who was actually the consultant on last of the Mohicans who made a lot of the weapons for that movie. But it became part of this unit cohesion and morale that they had these special blades 
that you know where that mark them as like uh you know their their own unit, but also like you know a cut above the rest. And what do you know it? Uh, he demanded at one briefing, uh, "Bring me a head on the pla- Bring me a head on a platter." Um, he of course claimed that he was speaking metaphorically, but when you've already issued your unit tomahawks, mm-hmm. like what the fuck do you think they're going to do with them? I uh, I don't know if you guys know this, um, but I was also in that unit, and um, I also you know came from a privileged background. And I also tried to get gifts for my unit, like this guy did, but. Um, I got everyone DVDs of How High because Red Man was in it. <laughs> it's a great movie, and I, that's why I'm not in the service anymore. The other, like the other signature thing, and like, here, and the other weird thing is like because these are capture and kill missions for high value, quote unquote, high value targets. So the value of which became dramatically <laughs> a huge amount of deflation going on here as the war ran on. Here, like I said, like most of these people were just random regular people. If they were in the yeah. Taliban at all, they were not exactly fucking high value targets. Yeah, by by 04 it was great great bargain targets. Yeah. Like they really uh, god, do you remember when they killed like the purported number 2 in Al-Qaeda in Iraq every week? Oh like, yeah, that years? was something. That was awesome. Cuz like the thing is like in 2002 they were put in charge of the hunt for Al-Qaeda and the hunt for bin Laden. And that was like the highest profile, like the choicest fucking gig you could get cuz like right after 9/11 that's all anyone was thinking about. But of course like as we all know uh, nothing ever materialized with that because most of these guys just crossed the border into Pakistan and there was nothing left for these people to really do in Afghanistan as it related to hunting down, capturing, or killing the leadership of Al-Qaeda. So these guys had this mission that they were all jacked up to do, but then immediately like bristled up against the constraints of like, oh, well, you, you can hunt these guys, but not across the border into Pakistan. So it was this feeling of uh, a, a, a thwarted mission and also just like the grinding day to day, you know, uh, you know, horror of these missions and the fact that many or mo- more than it ever had in previously in the past, that these Navy SEALs were getting killed, you know, in combat on these missions that led to this sense of like um, increasing uh, savagery and, and, and violence uh, born out against their enemies, uh, i.e., like many, including civilians. And it should be noted as well that, like, as early as 2002, even the government of Hamid Karzai was screaming absolutely at the Americans about how many civilians were getting killed in these nighttime capture and kill raids. You know, like, because, like, I mean, obviously, like, they, 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 you know, were supporting the American government. They wanted these operators, like hunting down leaders of the Taliban or the or Al-Qaeda. But like I said, as early as 2002, the Afghan government, like our Afghan government, was incensed and like, you know, raising the alarm about just how many fucking women, children, and like random people were just getting snuffed out on these supposedly high-level target raids. Um, the, the other thing that this article goes into is, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, canoeing as being a, a signature calling card of the Navy SEALs. Uh, canoeing is, of course, when you shoot someone in the forehead with one of these guns in such a way that it will just basically carve a divot out of their entire skull. It will expose their brain matter and essentially, or like you know, erase any identity that they had as a human being in life in death. You literally, it's like it's a signature V-shaped wound. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, it it is very nasty to think about and talk about, but like this became basically sport for the guys in these units. It wasn't just enough to just, you know, shoot, you know, tap someone twice in the chest and take them out, you had to add the extra shot to the forehead and just blow apart their brains and just, like, just, you know, destroy their head, 
essentially. And like, but like it became, like I said, a calling card. And on what I was going to say earlier is that the fact that these are all about identifying high value targets meant that officially they would have to take blood, skin, hair samples after the, the target had been killed to confirm their identity through like, you know, genetic tracing or like all, all this, you know, like bio security shit. Well, I mean, like, so if, if, if that's already okay, of course these guys are going to go start taking, you know, let's just say more than is necessary for an identification. And then you get these the grisly spectacles of like this one-upmanship about like just how good can we blow apart someone's brain and just like how, how good can we shoot someone in the head so like, yeah, we canoe them. It became such a thing that McRaven actually had to crack down on it and be like, you can't do this anymore. In the Intercept article, they, 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 they get into, like, after that it was officially, like, no more canoeing, this is making us look bad, or at least people are starting to take notice of this. Um, he, he talks about the, as he writes, uh, at least one canoeing incident that is quite well known if hidden in plain sight. And, of course, they, he is talking about the Bin Laden raid. And here I want to talk about this, and I want to, like, read from the article, because I think this, like, the Bin Laden raid just figures so largely in the mythology of the Navy SEALs, and it's, like, the, the apex of their achievement. But the actual accounting of what went down is like a fairly squalid and ridiculous matter that only gets even more absurd with, like I said, the competing careers of the two liars trying to cash in on their role in it. Yeah, it's amazing, uh, especially if you, I mean, I presume most of our listeners think this, uh, that it was basically a pheasant hunt set up by ISI. Yeah. It's like, it's you're going to that ranch where Dick Cheney shot the fat, like the fat <laughs> yeah, birds the, couldn't fly. The, the, yeah. the, 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 the broken winged birds yeah, and, massacred. And getting into an argument with your friend over like who shot the fat bird first. These guys are just yeah. running behind uh, up the fucking uh, stairwell like like the three stooges getting caught to try to put a bullet in this <laughs> yeah. guy. So yeah, in their yeah. head at that point, like, oh man, I'm going to get a, such a good book out of this. It's one of the most farcical, hilarious events in the history of the American empire because yeah, just this sick old man and like his wives and like the guy who gets his mail all asleep yeah. and all these fucking bozos with their decades of murders and fucking training running in and be like, no, I want to buy a boat. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I fucking got it. Like, just yeah. roided out of their minds. Yeah. Like, just standing over the body of his wife and being like, no, I'm going to get a fucking lake house. You fucking cunt. I got him. Fuck you. Yeah, listen to this. So it says, by the time Robert O'Neill entered Osama bin Laden's bedroom in, Abbottabad, in his Abbottabad compound on May 2nd, 2011, the Al-Qaeda leader was bleeding out on the floor, possibly already dead after being shot in the chest and leg by the lead assaulter on the raid. That operator known as Red inside the unit is still an active duty member of SEAL Team 6 and has never been publicly identified. O'Neill entered the room, walked over to where bin Laden lay on the floor, and shot him twice in the face. He then stood above the now indisputably dead man and canoed him, firing around into his forehead and splitting open the top of his skull, exposing his brain. Osama bin Laden had been branded by SEAL Team 6. O'Neill has not been shy about the fact that he canoed bin Laden. His forehead was gruesome, he later told Esquire magazine. It was split open in the shape of a V. I could see his brain spilling out over his face. Um, and, 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 he, and he's bragging about this in Esquire. 
Um, then it says here, two different SEALs, Robert O'Neill and Matthew Bissonette, have publicly taken credit for killing bin Laden. According to multiple sources, both of their accounts contain multiple self-serving falsehoods. The falsehoods, both significant and slight, demonstrate that, what even the, that when even conducting the most important missions, SEAL Team 6 was unable to rise above the culture of deceit, personal enrichment, and self-aggrandizement that has corrupted a fighting unit legendary for its discipline and code of honor. Well, I mean, I, I'd, take, I'd, take question with, I'd take question with that the framing of it in, in that regard. But here's, I mean, when it comes to the canoeing of bin Laden, which, you know, in this article's telling of it was a absolute breach of protocol that was just a flagrant violation of their orders. And in fact, both O'Neill and Bissonette on the raid itself, by choosing to go to the third floor where his bedroom was after they hadn't even cleared the second, was like flagrantly putting their, uh, you know, teammates at risk of dying. I mean, they were just like wildly, wildly, uh, you know, flagrant violation of protocol and orders during this mission. But yeah, like you said, Matt, like the Three Stooges all trying to go through the same door at the same time, these guys knew what an opportunity it was to be the guy who killed bin Laden, and they didn't give a shit about anything else. So, and, the, and then, okay, then, yeah, putting three bullets in the head of a guy who's already dead, a little ridiculous, just to like, just be like, yep, we, we, we canoed him, brother. Hell yeah. I did that to Bin Laden. It's like, oh, well, yeah, he was already dead, dude. Big fucking deal. Um, I honestly, I had a different feeling about this, where it's like all these things about how, oh, it was a such, I mean, like, this is an example of like a, just the way they like flagrantly violated orders on like the single most important mission in the history of the Navy SEALs. I don't know. I don't know. The fact that they um, ruined his face, shall we say, and made it like... Like if you yeah. showed a photo of the cadaver to be like this has been Laden, it would be a little hard. It would be pretty much impossible for even his family members to say with any certainty, absent birthmarks or dental records, whether that was the case. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I believe this 100% way one or the other, but it does certainly raise my eyebrow about whether that was even Bin Laden they killed there in the first place. And just the way in which they disposed of the body, where it's like, yeah, we had to chop it up and throw it into the ocean. Yeah, no, we did it Muslim style like they like. They like the ocean. They've always loved the ocean. Yeah, no, it raised new questions for me. I mean, I, I when I was reading the article and, you know, previously the Hirsch article, I do think it's interesting that it's a kill mission, right? Like, this is... Oh, yeah, there was, there was nothing Osama bin Laden could have told us. Right. We debriefed him right. or fucking interrogated no, no, him that would be no, useful. Yeah. they. It's a kill mission um, for this guy that I feel like we pretty much know was just... He was in a permanent ISI Airbnb, hmm. you know? He wasn't fucking Yeah, he wasn't doing anywhere. shit anymore. Yeah. He wasn't going anywhere. They were using... they. That was, like... That was someone's golden ticket. Some guy made a lot off that. And probably a few guys. And for, yeah, for JSOC to be like, you know, orders down from the president, kill this guy. Don't capture him. Very interesting. But now, yeah, the added thing of the canoeing makes it more interesting. I mean, I don't think Bin Laden is out there somewhere alive. I think it's like very possible. He just like, he. I remember him, he had a kidney illness. He needed dialysis. Yeah. It's yeah. very possible he just died like, sadly but in his own control like in a cave you know 12 years not ago. even in a cave probably just in a hospital or yeah. a house if that if that was if that's yeah. indeed what happened yeah and that yeah no this is just some guy that's always possible so i mean like the the official story of all this is very fishy to begin with but which makes the ludicrous lies told by these fucking <laughs> these fucking brand conscious fucking 
Navy SEAL killers even fucking funnier. Uh, it says your quote here. Uh, uh, the beauty of what they have constructed, said a former teammate, about how Bissonette and O'Neill cornered the market on the Bin Laden raid is that there is only one guy, essentially, who can come forward and say they're lying, and he won't ever talk. <laughs> the Navy so, SEAL story. That's it. Yeah, one guy can come forward. He'll never do it. I, I love this entire story. I really love this entire story. Even if it really is Bin Laden, which I'm I'm now kind of 50-50 on. Uh, I, I love this story because, I mean, it, from all the way down, you really see, like, the gears of empire. Because for the individual SEALs, it's like, you know, they kind of could have done this at any point. They kind of could have, you know, been given the green light to go ahead and fucking get this done and make their careers at any point. But... Finally, for whatever reason, whatever happens between like the ISI and the CIA and the president, whatever negotiation took place where Obama, he like he he's like yeah go ahead do it we have the we we have the we have, we're clear and then this guy just happens to be lucky enough. There's a big thing about how O'Neill made sure that he was in that on that specific team at this time because they would be the ones that would kill Bin Laden. But then even you go all the way up for Obama for whatever reason. He gets to be the president who's like, oh, yeah, now now we can now we can do it. Now, I, I, always- I, I, I due to, you know, luck and history and whatever else goes on and some things that are beyond my control. I get to be the guy. I get to be the president who killed bin Laden. And at the end of the day, it means nothing. It's just it's just another finger on a necklace. It's just another fucking stupid patch or challenge coin. But that's that's how empire works. That's it. And whether you're whether you're starting, you know, your fucking racist T-shirt company or like making shitty speeches or you're making shitty speeches for two hundred fifty thousand dollars a pop. You're having your birthday party with like John Kerry and fucking common. It, everyone, everyone is kind of doing the same thing, just hoping they get in on the right rotation of the gears on the empire machine to make their career after it. I mean, as long as you're talking about the bin Laden raid, I mean, like whether you believe they actually killed Osama bin Laden or not. I've always suspected that, you know, knowing what we know now, that it indeed was just basically a turkey shoot arranged by the ISI, who were like technically our allies. Um, and the fact that like Osama bin Laden had been living more or less unmolested in a suburb of what essentially is the West Point of Pakistan for as many years as he was would, you know, lead me to believe that there were many people who knew exactly where he was for a long time in, you know, the highest levels of the American intelligence community. And I've long suspected that they gave Obama that victory in his first term because giving it to Bush in his second term, the returns on it would just not be there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it just like when you go, when you got it, when you got something fucking golden, exactly. You use it to maximize your advantage. And by that point, Bush was already deeply damaged in terms of his popularity. He, was, he couldn't run again. Iraq I mean, war. there's nothing you he could do run again. There's yeah. nothing you could wring out of him at that point. And like, you know, it, it, and it's also like as a Republican, like, you like the same way only Nixon can go to China. Like it's just you can go so you can go wait you can get way more in return from a Democrat if you prove your usefulness to them. And you know, like let's be honest, that was a gift wrapped political victory for Obama a year before he ran for re-election. Mm-hmm. Like that 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 absolutely put to bed like any of the questions about like oh is he tough enough to be president? He was the guy who was president when we quote got Osama bin Laden, and I think that that was entirely <laughs> the timing of that always seems suspicious to me. And it's certainly just, regardless of what you think about it, that, that it ended up like that, it, the CIA and JSOC were, and the Navy SEALs who are, you know, let's, you know, the tip, you know, the, their guys, their button men, uh, were able to maximize 
the advantage of like of of proving their utility to to you know who is ostensibly their commander in chief. But let's be honest, in return, he let them do whatever they wanted anywhere in the world without any oversight. That's um, a theory. Just, There's also a possibility that I've always thought that they did it when they did just so that they could ensure that there would be the greatest television show episode of all time, the newsroom. <laughs> when the guy the guy sees he sees the 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 wings on the the pilot and he tells them that we just killed bin Laden for you. Or, you know, maybe they wanted to make John Cena's career. Compromise <laughs> to a permanent end. We have caught and Compromise to a permanent end. Osama bin Laden. Yeah, you know, a lot of people. If you wanted to charge of this. his career since that moment, it's just gone up, up, up. Yeah, I mean, like it is. It is funny that he did that, and now his his thing is like going on Chinese YouTube and being like, "I am very sorry for mentioning <laughs> Taiwan." <laughs> like, it's, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't hate him for it. It's like you know, showbiz is showbiz, baby. Yeah, he's on that grind. Respect. Yeah, he fucking yeah. learn. He learned Chinese to more successfully yeah, kiss their ass. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. Fucking good work, man. I could not learn Chinese. Like, Absolutely, gun to my ever. head. Not gonna no. happen. And he's such a grinder. Like he, you know, he has that like stupid fucking jock thing. Yeah. Where like he looks at it like lifting weights. Yep. And he's like, just, he's, on, I, he's yeah. on he's on Duolingo every day. Just got a yeah. got on my grind on my he's, grind. He's watching like Chinese soap operas, and he's like, yes. I understand the fucking plot with the secretary. Let's go. <laughs> he probably like, yeah, wakes up every day and like watches Chinese soap operas and like gets into conversations on like Chinese social media. And then he has a cheat day where he can speak English. That's awesome. So, I mean, speaking of show business, back to these, these fucking shitheads, O'Neill and Bissonette, who, you know, as we've established, violated orders even by being in the room in the first place. And even by official accounts, wasn't even the first guy to shoot Osama bin Laden and probably kill him. That guy, I guess to his credit, is still only known as Red and he hasn't cashed in on any fucking book deals, probably because he's not a liar. But anyway, uh, so, yeah, they violated orders by being there. And it said here... Uh, 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 they had specifically been asked to avoid shooting bin Laden in the face. O'Neill's decision to canoe the Al-Qaeda leader made him unrecognizable. You know, make of what you will of that. I personally think that was probably their orders were to do exactly that for whatever reason. Um, yeah. It says, okay, so going on here, it says, some of the assaulters on the mission were also angry with Bissonette and O'Neill because they neglected their responsibilities after bin Laden's son was shot. Instead of helping search and secure the second floor, both headed to the third floor hoping to get a chance for the historic kill. Both operators were accused of breaking the standard operating procedure to get themselves in position to be among the first to see or kill bin Laden. Then it says here, they, 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 they invented a new standard operating procedure of how to get a book deal. <laughs> yeah. So here we go here. Uh, Bissonette's best-selling book, No Easy Day, which is really <laughs> funny because uh, many of the other people that they interviewed like about this particular raid said it was by the standards of these hunt and kill nighttime you know, assassination missions was one of the easiest things they've ever fucking done outside the helicopter crash. Only one guy fired back at them, and it was like two shots from a pistol from like a second floor window, and no one was hit before that guy was shot in the head. There's yeah, the only, of- only one person in Bin Laden's compound fired a shot in anger back at them, and he got off like two shots. The biggest danger to them was that helicopter. Yeah, their own yeah, their helicopter, own helicopter, that helicopter that they crashed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it says here, uh, 
Uh, Bissonnette's best-selling book, No Easy Day, was published in September 2012, four months after he retired and less than two weeks after O'Neill got out of the Navy. The publication came as a surprise to the Pentagon because Bissonnette had failed to clear it as required. I mean, I love that because, like, well, the book's still out. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't matter too much to them if, they're, if, they, if the Pentagon really didn't want a fucking someone's memoir or account of their activities in war from being published. My guess is the publishing house would have pulled the fucking book. Yeah, I mean, but wasn't there a thing where they got to they took back six point seven million dollars yeah. from royal in royalties? From oh, okay, him? well, I mean, that he got he got really care he, about he got fucked. I mean, that's well, like well, that's such an, that's such an insult. That's like Bill Gates taking forty dollars from you. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. it's just like. Dude, they they spend that on Keurigs. Like that's nothing uh, to the Pentagon. God damn. Check that this is, out though. They really they really must have been mad at him. Check this out though. After the publication of No Easy Day, which in one chapter describes in great detail the specialized gear, along with brand names Bissonnette wore on the Bin Laden mission, <laughs> the Navy opened several inquiries into Bissonnette's outside business contracts. They soon discover he had violated a series of Navy regulations. A joint NCIS-FBI investigation into whether he disclosed classified material in the book lasted two years. During the investigation, Bissonnette surrendered a photo of Bin Laden's dead body that had been unlawfully Retained. Yes, you're right. Bissonnette eventually settled his legal case with the government, agreeing to return $6.7 million in profits from the sale of No Easy Day and giving up any proceeds from the future sale of the book. So I guess they did They did get him in the end for oh, not yeah. going through proper channels. But how funny is it that he included a chapter that he's like, here's my everyday carry. Oh, here's the everyday carry that killed Bin Laden. It oh just my listed God. all he's, these brands that he had business influencer. relationships with. He's an influencer. He's an IG model. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm wearing Fashion Nova, you know, leggings. I'm wearing a fucking Gucci t- oversized T-shirt. Like, oh my god. god, damn, dude. Speaking of, I, I, uh, I love, I love that last part too about the royalties because it's like, man, to any patriots out there, you don't think you're giving enough to the Pentagon? Just buy like a hundred copies of No Easy Day. <laughs> it's going right to them. Oh, speaking that's of, buy, uh, that's buying all the fucking half a million dollar coffee pots in the world. Speaking of uh, Instagram influencers and fuckboys, uh, this is like Navy SEAL adjacent, but have you guys been following the story of that, uh, the Navy sailor who's just been charged with starting a fire on an aircraft carrier that like injured 60 people and destroyed an aircraft carrier that's going to cost $3.5 billion to repair? Um, no, I okay, didn't hear like, about this. Okay, yeah, he, he's just been charged, but like there are photos of him from his social media, and he's like, he's got the six pack abs, he's got the duck face, like he is just a straight up thought. But the reason he uh, set the ship on fire was because his girlfriend, who was a sailor, who had, had dumped him, but like he, she broke up with him after he had washed out of Navy SEAL training. So like he wanted to be a SEAL and they rejected him, and then his girlfriend broke up with him and he burned an aircraft carrier and destroyed it. Like destroyed an aircraft carrier, no longer in commission. Uh, you know, I kind of that's kind of cool. You know, I think that's like, you know, if you're gonna throw a fit, throw a fit. All right, so uh, the the no easy day, Bissonette. He he was he was goofus, but um, O'Neill is the mm-hmm. gallant in terms of selling your your spurious connection to uh, killing Osama bin Laden. Uh, it says here, uh, although Bissonette was able to sell a book and tell his story first. 
O'Neill arguably got the better deal. In March 2013, Esquire's profile of O'Neill portrayed him as a humble, quiet professional who, after 16 years in the Navy, would no longer have health insurance and was otherwise a downtrodden American hero. The account did not dwell on the fact that O'Neill had chosen to separate from the Navy nearly four years before he was eligible for extensive retirement benefits. In O'Neill's account, he did not see Red fire his shots at bin Laden because he was looking back down the stairs for reinforcements. When he finally entered the bedroom alone, bin Laden was standing uninjured, a weapon nearby, his wife in front of him like a human shield. Only inches from his target, O'Neill claims, he shot bin Laden twice in the forehead. Bin Laden dropped, and O'Neill fired the security round that canoed him. Some of O'Neill's teammates were outraged he'd been so brazenly inaccurate and self-serving in his account. For many on the raid, including those who had been present in the bin Laden bedroom with O'Neill, it was the first time they'd heard anyone in the command say the terrorist leader was standing, posing a threat of any kind. Now, keep in mind, that was the official narrative of like when the news broke the story, that, he, that he, his wife was in front of him and he was using her as a human shield and that he had a gun nearby. I mean, by all accounts, he was already on the ground when they dumped three bullets into his head. Um, and yeah, it, it's established by like these guys lying about it in the moment and then cashing out to get book deals and fucking speaking gigs. Yeah, so check this out. Um, in 2004, O'Neill unveiled himself as the man who killed bin Laden in an hour-long Fox News special, just as Bissonette published a second book. The former teammates both hit the press circuit, each telling reporters off the record that the other was a liar. Already a popular motivational speaker, O'Neill now charges up to $35,000 a speech. Today, he is a paid on-air commentator for Fox News and is reportedly eyeing a run for the Senate in his native Montana. He even has his own line of clothing. I mean... Shouldn't the account of how these two guys um, crassly sold out so that they could uh, have a TV gig and a clothing line and also just just basically call each other liars in the media? I mean, isn't that breaking the code of fucking honor and discipline that these guys pride themselves on? I mean, like, how seriously do they take all this shit to begin with when, like, these are the type of fucking thoughts that are produced by by this gang of fucking killers? I think they take it very seriously when they're, like, enriching themselves with each other and, uh, you know, running their own syndicates and killing people and all that when it's just them helping each other. But I think after that, it's every man for himself, just like every other piggish American. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, honor, honor and duty and fucking loyalty means a lot when you're all like shooting Anavar into each other and holding these Coke parties and like stealing shit together and like, yeah, making trophies, pumping each other up. But once you're out and you're just another fucking American, just like every other American who wants a media career, yeah, there's no honor. There really is, yeah, and there wasn't any before. It was just like, you know, mutually assured destruction before. I mean, but it is funny that these guys are, you know, uh, like I said, the apex of American patriotism and masculinity really is kind of what we're talking about here. Like these right. guys, these guys represent a rugged frontier vision of like a a man who is capable of incredible violence in the service of a civilizing mission or to protect home and hearth from even more violent and evil people um that that in the 21st century seems like outmoded or that that at least in in america like american men seem to constantly be grasping for this vision like i mean that's why all this operator clothing is so fucking popular in the first place it's so that these like suburban dads can wear like tactical cargo shorts and be like yeah I, I, I'm I, supporting or have some sort of kinship with the, uh, the operators who killed bin Laden. It's because like 
the lot our lives have gotten so safe and predictable that that but, but but at the same time people feel like this loss like you know oh you know we we should still be scalping people or like we men should be able to do that if 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 called upon or if it's necessary which is fucking hilarious to begin with but like the fact that like you know these that's how these guys view themselves that like you know you have the whole chris kyle thing that like you know we're the sheep dogs protecting the flock and you know you, you need an a, you need a a prick to kill an asshole and shit like that but like when it really comes down to it um these guys are just craven media bitches no spitefully like you know sniping at each other and trying to cash in so they can have fucking a clothing brand i mean this is all like i mean sorry like that that is that is female tendencies that lying about your friends so that you can have a clothing label and that like oh their book won't sell because they're telling lies about you and people should buy your book is i'm sorry for all of the like the, the the tough frontier warrior mentality that these guys go for, I'm sorry, is female tendencies, and so is their fucking all the challenge coins and fucking patches and medals that these guys love so much. Well, this I look at these guys now and I see like boot gang or like whoa Vicky. I see someone who will like do anything to get even like a sliver of a media career. It just happens that these guys like do everything. Isn't like take their shirt off in Seven Eleven and cause a public incident. It's like serve in a war for a decade but everyone the beauty of this country is that everyone is that everyone Everyone is is a messy bitch who loves drama yeah because everyone the highest thing you can attain the most desirable thing for everyone is a media career and everyone whether they realize it or not is kind of that person and they just happen to like be in a situation and have the right trappings uh that they can put out this image of like honor and obligation and duty but you know they're just the same as you or i yeah i mean it's the only well, dream I mean, of a lot more alienated labor that still exists in this country is that is that you can just be yourself and and get paid for it yeah i mean i uh after I feel, them i feel kind of guilty like we we didn't have to murder anybody well we can start doing it now if you <laughs> that's true feel better uh, yeah i no, yeah, I mean, like, I guess you know, if, if you're if you're a wayward, you know, boy out there, or maybe have a boy's heart, but you're a 46 year old father in Missouri, and you need someone to look up to that really like speaks to the values of classic masculinity and like duty and honor. I guess you know, if you're looking for a man in uniform, I guess like a park ranger would be good. The guys who protect the buffalo, those or yeah, those bison, guys are bison, cool. bison. I mean, bison in America, but those guys. uh I saw this documentary about these guys in Congo who protect a gorilla sanctuary. Those guys are pretty badass. Absolutely, yeah. They're, those guys, they're models not, of, uh, of like uh, protecting people and protecting things and being honorable and all that. Those guys, those guys aren't even really like they don't care about being famous or anything. They're just like, no, you got to protect these guys. We love them. But no, I mean, like, yeah, if you don't want to model yourself after someone who's a messy bitch who wants a media career. I guess like those of you guys are like a mailman or something. I don't know. I don't know. Like the the Turkish guy who does the ice cream tricks. You know, <laughs> Fuck that I'm just guy. trying to think of like Fuck good, that good, guy. No, I, mean, I want my goddamn ice cream. Give me my treat. Okay, Give me my fucking ice cream. Settle down. So, okay, so in this world, there are wolves and there are sheep, and <laughs> wolves are the people who like take the ice cream from people who rightfully bought it, and sheep need to be protected, and the, there needs to be like another wolf. Who's like good at doing tricks with the ice cream, so another wolf can't take it because he gets tired of the ice cream tricks. But a sheep who's a bitch will just stay there and like look at all the ice cream tricks until I mean, the guy gives it to him. I mean, I guess like just to uh, you know, I don't know, like to wrap things up. My final thoughts here is that like 
the special forces, SEAL Team Six, the operators, these elite cadres of like highly, highly trained killers who are just like men of exceeding skill and familiarity with violence is like, look, it's, it's nothing new in American history, but like as our empire, uh, you know, expands and now, I don't know, collapses in on itself, the utility of people like this will become ever more uh, present or like the, 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 the need to use them to, 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 to further the goals of the American empire as that shifts and changes uh, because of our own actions is I think going to become uh, like, I mean, like these guys are it. Cause like, look, I mean, this country doesn't want to fight real wars anymore. Like we're in Iraq, like, you know, I mean, I'm sure like there are plenty of people who want to, but like th this is a way to project American violence overseas and keep people in line and control black markets and assassinate people that we want dead um, that doesn't leave like a footprint. There's not a lot of American bodies coming home. It's just all kind of like uh, it's scary, violent in the shadows, but like carried out with like maximum efficiency and minimum oversight. And I think that's just a function of like the changing American way of war or just not not even war, just like our po American policy and the necessity for things like this. But I mean, I think it should go without saying that not only do we not need a military even like one tenth the size of what it currently is? We certainly don't need all of these fucking like special units in within the military itself that like, as I said at the beginning, are militaries within militaries that are accountable to themselves alone who, uh, I mean, like it's it just like, I mean, like just like it's, it's bad enough that we have a military this big, but like there is absolutely no need for any of these super secret special forces units. There really isn't. I don't know. And Look at Afghanistan right now. How can you argue with those results? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, what's that? Oh, oh no. I just oh the Kandahar Arby's has been taken by the Taliban. <laughs> Shit. I, I, I love the people who are posting that as like proof that we should have stayed there. And it's like, what would twenty more years? No, that, just, the fact yeah, that this. Yeah. I mean, my God, like we were that we were in Vietnam for what half as long, and they got a two year interval between U.S. Yeah. withdrawal and collapse. This is two a weeks. month. The, two the, weeks. Just not, 20 years of nothing. Just yeah. propping up a bunch of child raping opium dealers. And then as soon as you left, they had nothing there to keep them going. Yeah. No, this Total, is like just bloodbath for no reason. This should be humiliating for anyone who wanted us to stay there or even really go there. Yeah. What the fuck were we doing, man? Yeah. yeah. Well, no. I mean, shit, we just talked about what we were doing there. No, yeah. Fucking canoe, I, I, canoeing I, I people know, for yeah. fun. Can't believe it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, what the hell? I can't What's believe we didn't, these we didn't like endear ourselves to all of them. Damn. Yeah. How? Just yeah. Like, Why can't you guys be chill? Killing scores and scores of civilians, um, allying ourselves with just about the most corrupt and evil people in that country who aren't the Taliban. Um, it, it worse than them, like the local security hey, forces. Hey, I mean, and if, drug you're, if you care about shit. the, uh, the uh, opiate. Uh, uh, opiate overdoses. The, the the guys we allied with are way worse than the Taliban. They actually yeah. stopped opium production. And yeah, you know, we, you know, also we 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 name buildings after people who are behind the opiate crisis in this country. Yeah, think about like uh like the Phoenix program and everything in Vietnam. Like, gee, um, the Golden Triangle of like you know heroin production in Southeast Asia exploded, and then, and then <laughs> after Vietnam, heroin addiction and use in America exploded, and then lo and behold, the war on terror. We're in another. Her even worse opiate crisis that like I think 90,000 Americans died last year from opiate overdoses. 
Mm-hmm. Where do you think all this heroin comes from? How do you think it gets to yeah. America? Who do you think is getting paid for uh, all the money it's generating? I mean, ask uh, yourself that when you're what, like, why were we in Afghanistan for 20 years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, stand on a lighter note. Uh, Will, did you see that? Uh, <laughs> it was like some politics account, uh, with some politics like news account that's like run by a robot in Macedonia, probably like all of them. And, uh, it was worded like an academics post where it was like the Taliban and China linked up. <laughs> Need it or keep it? Yeah. Yeah. The Taliban's in the studio sending fire or trash. <laughs> that, was, that was really getting me. Kabul could fall this weekend. Facts or fiction? Yeah. <laughs> they should have had academic. Like if we were going to do 20 years of that, they should have had the academics covering the war. Like he's better than Anderson Cooper. Oh, he gets, God, yeah. he gets so many more scoops. Like he's, uh, academics is awesome. Um, I did, I did see like in terms of the, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal, I did see like some Swedish politician who was like, this is like Saigon all over again. Americans are cutting and running. I'm like, send a, send a Swedish guy over there. Send some yeah, Swedish see, yeah. troops to Afghanistan, you asshole. What the fuck are you talking yeah, about? Send the Swedish, you do it. You're, you're the yeah. Swedish government. This matters send, so much to you. Send your army of like chocolatiers and like <laughs> professional Lego competitors over there <laughs> to see what the fuck happens. Like, no, no one's doing this. No, it's not going to work, guys. I mean, like, I, yeah, no, I'm not like, and I've seen this ridiculous like uh, thing among uh, among like sort of center right people that uh, it, it's very reminiscent of uh, when the same people would tell lefties and people who are against the Iraq War that they were rooting for the insurgents to win. That people are happy about the Taliban, which is absurd. Like no one's cheering for the Taliban, but it's like, yeah, no, you you literally like you can't impose this on Pete. Like you, unless you were there for like a hundred and fifty two hundred years, unless there were like an entire nation of people who knew nothing but the occupation. Even then, I don't know. And you, no one thinks like the Taliban's fucking cool, but it's like, yeah, no, the countries have to be in charge of their own destiny. Well, I mean, like, and, and like, if we, if we were there that long, just bringing opium back and forth. And this is, this is what it's like, like a week after we're gone. I don't know what else you think we, we would have done. Well, I mean, it's like the, the point I was trying to make, like, close it out is that, like, people people will justify the existence of these, like, highly trained, specialized commando units because they can do what no one else can do. And even if you're justifying that along the lines of, like, hostage rescue, which would be, like, you know, just just about, like, the only conceivably, like, good thing that I could imagine you would need, like, a, you know, highly trained commando unit to do. By the way, in this article, it contains an account of <laughs> them killing the hostages they were supposed to re- fucking save with a fucking fragmentation grenade that they threw, like, right at her. <laughs> right at her. So, I mean, even that is, like, but, like, why do these people need to be fucking rescued in the first place? These, like, aid workers and doctors and shit. It's because they're there trying to help the people that have been, like, fucked over by the war we started. So like, all, or like, you know, all these, all these dangerous actors, because like, oh, after Al-Qaeda, it was ISIS or Boko Haram, and I'm sure it'll be fucking something else like the, tomorrow. It's just like, we create all the conditions that like would theoretically necessitate the use of something like SEAL Team 6 to deal with. But like, these people don't even deal with it. Like, they are part of it. Like, they are every bit, like, like the, the violence they do is like not in protection of America. If anything, it makes us all greatly less safe. And it's just, there's just, there's absolutely, like, these units, all of these units should be disbanded tomorrow 
And I mean, forget having a military this ludicrously large in the first place. We have 10,000 nuclear weapons. No one's invading America. But like, it's just we, we need groups like this to exist because that we need to facilitate things like assassinations and drug trafficking because that is U.S. policy, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the people, as long as it, it's just, the people doing it are going to be no different than the people who like chainsaw people's heads off for the fucking dr- Mexican drug cartels. Yeah. These are the people who do this work. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, if you want to sign up for the Navy, we're going to put a link in the description. <laughs> you know, if you like what you heard, uh, you think you want to be a part of this, you know, enter code CHOPO in your enlistment form uh, for 20% off challenge coins. Um, the Navy. It's where you go. <laughs> the Navy. The Navy. The one it's on the boat. <laughs> the one where you're on a boat. The, the Navy. You want to see the sea? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That, let's leave it there. That was our, our, a brief history of the Navy. Until next time, guys. Until next time. Bye.